Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Rafael Espinal is a New York City council member for the 37th district, which includes Bushwick, Brownsville, Cypress Hills, and East New York. In a city of deeply embedded politics and politicians, he has managed to navigate through it all and create new laws for New York City that have and will have a huge positive impact on our climate and underserved communities. Today, Rafael and I discuss his path to politics, how he has been able to get his groundbreaking legislation passed, and how we can be the change in our own local governments. I hope you enjoy. So, Raphael, welcome. Welcome, council it's member. It's great to be here. Thank you, Christine. I am honored to have you here today. And I'm excited. I know how valuable your time is. For those of you out there who've never seen a council member's schedule, it will put ours to shame. <laughs> I don't know when you guys sleep. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't know what my day will look like the night before. It's just is how that crazy, right? It's how crazy it is. Yeah. Is that right? So you're just yes. going with the flow, I'm right? On. I'm just on. You're always on. <laughs> So you have accomplished so much for New York City people in conservation in six short years on the council. I'm going to mention just a few, just a few that you have sponsored. Creating an urban agriculture website, studying the feasibility of microgrids, which is a study of energy being lost and how to recapture it. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Requiring new commercial buildings to be partially covered in plants or solar panels, prohibiting the sale of single-use bottles at city parks and beaches, banning plastic straws in New York City establishments, repealing the cabaret law, a law which was often used to shut down LGBTQ and minority establishments. Mm -hmm. You created an office of nightlife, prohibiting city agencies from using city resources to comply with federal deportations, creating a web portal to facilitate food donations to hungry New Yorkers, a law that codifies New York City as a sanctuary city by prohibiting city agencies to aid in federal immigration enforcement, requiring the Department of Homeless Services to keep a record of the unsheltered homeless population, banning the sale of cosmetic products with certain harmful chemicals, introducing the first fleet of electric buses in the city, bringing meditation into our public schools, and bird-safe windows. I mean, come on. Wow. That's like, wow. Can I keep that list? Right. (laughs) I pulled that from your website, added a few that I knew of my own. I mean, it's incredible. You you are so tuned in to our needs for a sustainable future, and you make it look so easy. I Yeah, you really do. I spent a year myself just trying to get attention around a glyphosate bill, one that you did, that you co-sponsored but did not write. I have a feeling it would have passed if you'd written it. it's nearly impossible just getting attention, but yet you've passed these, you've entered them. I have a question, so it's twofold. First, how do you do this? How do you get it all passed so quickly? And two, 
Why is it so hard to get these bills supported and passed when what you're doing is common sense? You're protecting us. Yeah. I mean, I would say the how is the secret, the secret to me. But listening to a legislation I've been working on and thinking back how some of them were passed so quickly, it really came down to building bridges between the many stakeholders who are affected by this single issue. Uh, If we talk about banning plastic straws, which is an environmental issue, but also affects the hospitality industry, the restaurants, the bars, the music venues, I made sure that I approached both parties. It's easy to get the environmentalists on board because, of course, they want to see plastic pollution go away. But it's hard to get the venues to comply because they see this as an extra burden on their business of having to do away uh, with a tool that their patrons might use or maybe the, the cost of purchasing uh, more uh, sustainable uh, alternatives is more expensive. But it's figuring out how do you message these issues to, to those stakeholders so for the restaurants, it was easy. What we would say is if you're not using plastic straws, you're spending less money overall. It's going to help your bottom line. Also, there's an increased consumer demand in, in patronizing establishments or businesses that are eco-friendly. And they understood that. And a lot of people in the industry are also eco-friendly themselves. But we were able to message it that clearly to them. They, they thought it was a no-brainer. And there was actually a survey put out to all the restaurants in the city. And over 80% agreed that a ban is a good idea. And uh, I think that when you uh, approach what the, potentially could be the opposition in a way that shows them this is a positive for them, I, I think it's easy to open up the conversation and then get it pushed quickly. Does that make sense? It does make (laughs) sense. I guess for my own issue with glyphosate, it's a cancer-causing chemical, Mm -hmm. and people have died from it, yet it doesn't get passed. So I know you can't speak to that, Bill, but the obstacles that you come across, and how do you—I mean, you said you get a coalition going together. Is it when you have that many people that the mayor can't say no or that the council can't say no and it gets passed? Absolutely. When you're able to uh, create a coalition that's unbreakable— for yeah. lack of a better word, it's easier to negotiate against the mayor or even the speaker. You know, you're, you're passing a bill through a body of 51 members. That legislation has to get support of over 26 council members and also has to get support of the mayor's office who ultimately has to sign that bill. So when you're able to build strong ground support, then the support itself is also representative of votes and the electorate. And when you go up for re-election, you want to make sure you have as many friends as possible. So the mayor and the speaker and anyone who's getting in the way of a bill getting passed sees that support as potential voters in their next election, per se. These are unsaid truths and realities of what elected officials are thinking when they get in the way or they're supportive of certain things. How am I supporting the voice of the people and how do I make sure that I am building friends along the way and not more enemies? So on a federal level, when we're looking at what's going on today in today's politics and people are always looking at when the polls are turning, everyone's saying when those polls turn, when they get up to a certain point where people want impeachment or removal from the office. And that's what the Senate is looking at because then that's their constituents. And then so it's really all about the people. So we do have the power. The people people have the power. And and this is something I've learned being elected official for the past seven years is that the more we raise our voices, the more of a chance things will get passed. For one example, there was a point where everyone thought $15 minimum wage was a crazy idea here in, in the state of New York. And I would bet you a million bucks that the, the governor did not wake up one day and say, hey, this is a great idea. This is the right thing to do. He woke up to polls turning 
to the idea. He woke up to people pushing for this idea, and this is what prompted him to move forward with passing a $15 minimum wage, for example. Amazing. Amazing. So those protests that we go to, it seems right. like pretty much every week Absolutely. now, the signs we have, the petitions. Yep. They all help. They, they all, all help. help. Okay. Good. Keep signing them. So I'm going to change this a little bit. I mean, you're obviously, you're the embodiment of a public servant to me. You, you really, you listen to people. In my work with you over the years, it's just been nothing but truth to power is what I see. Thank um, you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And it seems to be your calling. But you shared with me once that this was not your first passion. No. <laughs> or your intention no, when no, you came no. out of college. Can no. you tell us what your dreams were? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I had no technical skills around policy or politics when, when I got elected. I did gain experience working in an elected official's office for four years. But when I was in school, my passions in general were more in the creative fields. Technically, I'm, I'm good at film editing, at film capturing, photography, graphic design, just kind of have this creative passion in, in within myself. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that for me what was more important is communicating with people. And I think that's what I appreciate about the creative side of me. And I saw that connection in politics. And I saw in politics that there was a lack of a creative voice of someone who's going to think ahead and figure out ways of building bridges uh, through communication. And I think that that skill set has allowed me to be able uh, to pass off a lot of the important legislation that we've gotten done over the years. And what drew me to running for office is, is this void that I was feeling of investment from government in communities like the one I represent, marginalized communities, and not seeing issues that were important to also the millennial generation not being addressed in a real way. I think that anytime we turn the TV on, we often see elected officials being reactive to what's happening in the news instead of thinking ahead of how we can better the lives uh, of the younger generations who we all know, or as cliche as that might sound, is the future of our city, or of, our, of our country, of our planet. I love that. And I think as a Gen Xer, I'm a huge fan of the millennial population. <laughs> I don't I don't rag on you guys at all. In fact, I, I feel like we have a lot in common and I'm grateful for what you bring out there. I, I posted today, as a matter of fact, I was talking about, you know, that we need to look at the answers are there. Like, what are we afraid to look at? Mm -hmm. And your generation is not afraid to look at it. And, and actually, it's like, it's there. You right. know, climate crisis is here. Right. It's not when. It's like, now what? Right. right? Your tagline, too, for your last election was a, a livable city. And that's what we need to look at. You know, the fires are here. They're going to keep coming. Mm -hmm. The floods are going to keep coming. What are we doing? We can't just hope that they're going to go away. So another interesting fact that I just found out was that you were elected as a New York State Assembly member. Right. Okay, first of all, at the age of 26, mm -hmm. which is like, what? But then you stepped down to run for city council. What were the reasons behind this? And why didn't you stay at a state level? What did you see? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I knew I wanted to run for office at that point. The state assembly seat was something that literally happened overnight. Uh, the state assembly member whose seat I ran mm -hmm. for actually resigned to take on a position with the governor at the time. So I, I had no expectation of running at that time, I, but I knew that in two years on the line, the city council seat that I currently hold was going to be vacant, and I wanted to run for that seat. But, but this opportunity came up, and me already feeling this passion of wanting to be a representative, uh, I saw it as the opportunity to get my foot in the door and start speaking on the issues that mattered to my communities. So I ran. I ran at, at 26. I got elected. I was around 27 years old when I got sworn in. And it was two years in Albany. 
where I learned a lot about the democratic process, uh, where I learned a lot about partisan politics, uh, how things get done in, in a complicated body. But well, what I was felt that I was missing is that I wasn't as close to home as I wanted to be. You, know, you have to be in Albany pretty much every week. You spend more than half the week up there. And the issues that you work on are not necessarily issues that impact the city per se. There are issues that you're voting on that impact other parts of the state, which at the time my brain wasn't open to. I was very, very hyper-focused on what was happening in the city of New York. So I could have stayed in Albany. It's a job with no term limits. There are members who've served there for 50, 60 years. But what I found to be more important to me was to be able to run for a seat that kept me close to home and allowed me to have a hyper-focus on the issues that thought mattered most to my community. So the city council was that opportunity. And two years later, as it opened up, I decided to run. Now I'm term limited and I have two years left. <laughs> but I was willing to trade job security, per se, to be able to have the most impact in, in the shortest amount of time as possible. So your next move, which you've announced, so I can publicly say this, is that you're running for a Brooklyn borough president, yes, yes, right? And yep. what was the decision behind that? Yeah, I mean, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. It's Back in my mind, has always been a dream to represent the, the borough that has shaped who I am today. And I believe a borough that has shaped a lot of the conversations that's happening across the country. Brooklyn is the largest Democratic county in the country, meaning we have more Democratic votes within Brooklyn than any other county of the entire country. And I think that Brooklyn is a unique place to be able to continue shaping policy, continue shaping public opinion on important issues, while also allowing me to work on the local issues to make sure that Brooklyn continues being a livable borough in the city of New York. So it's a love and a, and a passion and a gratitude to the borough, while also it's, I see it as an opportunity to shape local issues while also being a voice on national issues. Okay, so give me a little bit of a civics lesson there. So the city council produces legislation that then gets approved and then it goes to the mayor and he signs it and it becomes a law. Right. So what does Brooklyn Borough President, what's the... It's a yeah. good question because no yeah. one knows what the, no what knows. the job yeah. actually and, does. Uh, but looking at the job, well, the borough president oversees all of the community boards. The office is the one that, that makes the final appointments onto the boards. We all know community boards play a vital role uh, within different neighborhoods on issues affecting those neighborhoods. The borough president also controls a large capital budget. Uh, capital budget is used to build schools, make construction repairs around the city. And I think that having a, a capital budget that large allows you to also influence policy. For example, last year I was able to secure $1.5 million as a city council member and use that one point five to purchase the city's first electric school buses. And that in itself, I think, created an opportunity to change policy of how the DOE Department of Education decides to move forward with implementing school buses and who they contract and making sure that we have a greener fleet on our streets. So using that capital money to influence affordable housing, to influence the protection of community gardens, to influence building new infrastructure around possibly healthier foods with food hubs, I think the opportunities are endless there. And borough president also gets to influence legislation as well. Working with council members, council members do introduce legislation at the behest of the borough president and just being able to have a wider reach because currently I represent three neighborhoods and having a wider reach around the entire borough, I'll be able to have access to more ideas and be able to use those ideas to move our city forward. And I, I know that the Brooklyn borough president sounds specific to Brooklyn, but I'm a council member from Brooklyn, and everything I do affects the entire city. So whatever Brooklyn Borough President does or Manhattan Borough President or Bronx Borough President does, it does affect the entire city at the end of the day. 
Absolutely. I mean, your ban on single-use plastic affects the entire city. I know you're co-sponsoring a bill right now that will allow people to go in and have their clean canteens or their, I don't want to call out, but Mm -hmm. that just happens to be the one I (laughs) use, right? And I see it all the time. But you can go into the restaurant then, any restaurant, and they'll have to fill it. I was at my uh, ballet class in Greenwich Village, and I had my clean canteen. I said, can you fill this with water? And she said no. And it was just like, but you can buy one in plastic right Right. now. So, And that's, like you said, from Brooklyn, but that's going to affect us all positively. Brooklyn, I hope you're listening and I hope you're out there and supporting Councilmember Espinal because you have this vision and you see it. You're so tuned into it and it's just wonderful to see because you're welcome. You're welcome. So, Raphael. If someone's thinking of of running for an office seat, what do they need to know? Is this a good place to make that change? Is it difficult? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the most rewarding job, right? You have a huge responsibility, and it's to represent the people uh, of the city. It's not an easy job. It looks glamorous from the outside, right? You think that maybe you're at the galas all the time, you're shaking hands. But the reality is, is that the work comes down to the neighborhood and the block and and the streets of New York City and making sure that the people who don't have a voice in the process feel that you're representing them. And that's where the real work comes in. And we all know that we as humans are complicated. And since you represent so many people, there's so many different opinions and views on issues. What we might think is a great idea might be a terrible idea to someone else. And you have to learn how to balance that and be able to make decisions that at the end of the day, you see that in the long run, it's going to have a positive effect on everyone and not just a few. So there's a lot of pressure around that. And thanks to social media, opinions are able to be more noticeable and, and public opinions able to grow faster. And you have to be hip and be in tune with what's happening. So it's a difficult job. I don't discourage anyone to run because we always need fresh new voices to be part of the process. But I think that you have to be ready for that challenge because uh, the people who are depending on you to do the right thing. So I think that if you feel that the government is not working for you, get up and you feel like you should run for office, do it. But be ready and be on your game. Yeah, so that social media goes both ways, right? You're very active on Instagram. I know it's one of the ways to connect with you. That's actually how we first connected. But it's not all uh, roses, right? It's not all accolades. Do you read your criticism? Yeah, absolutely. It's important to, I think. It's sometimes it's, it's folks who are just trolling you the entire time. And no matter what you do and there be something good, even if you do something good, they'll say you're doing it for another reason. But sometimes it's folks who don't agree with a position you took and, and they try to share with you why they feel that, that that you took the wrong position on a certain issue. So it's important to, to understand what's happening around you uh, and to understand how people are feeling so that you can be more aware when you're doing your job. I know that this came it hurts, to play. And it hurts. It hurts. It, it hurts. does hurt. No matter <laughs> how thick your it skin hurts. is. No matter how thick your skin is, it hurts. Yeah. But it's. I think that um, if you have something that you really want to say to the elected official, you should say it, and then they should hear it. That comes with the territory. It does. It does. <laughs> so you just had a difficult vote. We're shutting down Rikers here. Um, that's something that's been in talking about for a while. And then you voted against it. And mm-hmm. I know why you did, because you'd said that the bill wasn't expansive enough, right? You know, in my own opinion, that we're having the same administration that is going to be controlling this jail, that they're not changing the construct. Mm-hmm. They're just changing the building. Now we're going to have five little right. Rikers instead right. of one big one. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? 
It was a difficult vote for many reasons. One, I do believe Rikers should close, uh, you know, and the, the conversation around that vote was solely focused on this is the vote to close Rikers. Uh, in reality, the vote doesn't necessarily close Rikers. It just creates the opportunity to create the new smaller jails. A vote to uh, officially close Rikers is happening later down the line. You know, I just want to make that clear on what the vote actually did. But it, it was an important step, right? In order to close Rikers, you have to create new spaces for potential inmates in the future. What really upset me was that if you look at the zip codes of, of the inmates and where they came from, a majority of people incarcerated come from communities in East Brooklyn. Bed-Stuy, East New York, Cypress Hills, Bushwick, Crown Heights. And none of us were actually engaged in what investments should be made to ensure that people do not get incarcerated in the future. Yes, there, there were, there's a plan around that. There is a small plan around that. Yes, there was a conversation around making investments in the communities that are absorbing the potential new jail sites. But we looked at the numbers and didn't feel that spending 8 to $10 billion on building new jails without matching that investment in East New York only ensures is that people in my community are still going to continue getting locked up and going to jail. The 10-year-olds, the 15-year-olds in my community now are going to likely be the ones filling those jails in 10 years when they're actually built. So where's the real conversation around building more community centers like we did in East New York, building better schools, creating more programs, making sure that they don't end up in jail or having a negative situation happening at some point down the line because of a lack of investment from, from the city? And, and where is that conversation? We'll continue to have it. Uh, there were some that will argue and say that uh, that investment ha has been promised as part of the package. But what we're saying is that doesn't go far enough. And it's just a way of saying that something was done uh, in making those investments. So, again, the frustration is we can create this 10-year plan on creating new jails. But where's the 10-year plan to end incarceration of black and brown and minority communities? Humans are interesting, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's one of those frustrations. It's why I ran for office. Well, I'm grateful. I'm grateful you brought meditation into the schools. Oh, How's that working? Oh, uh, it's good. It's great. I I uh, have to thank our current Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, who has been a strong leader in this conversation. He himself has adopted yoga and wellness and meditation into his own life. Uh, he's a vegetarian after he found out he got diabetes about three, four years ago. So he's really... Uh, made a 180 in his own personal life. And having an advocate that strongly uh, at that level as, as the board president was very helpful. It was very helpful in, in having these broader conversations that I've been bringing to City Hall, like urban agriculture, meditation, wellness. So he has been able to advocate all of the dollars into schools in my district. And we've been working together in, in seeing a, a pilot program in East New York for children in middle school and, and teaching them the tools of meditation and yoga and seeing how that's helped them in the classrooms. So the idea is that hopefully that, that this pilot program is expanded within DOE and every school in the city gets to benefit from it. So it's, it's an ongoing program. It's been a year. There have been great people working in the DOE in charge of seeing this come into fruition. So I'm just excited about the future. I know there's more to say about it, but I would say that the DOE is teaching the faculty and staff and principals and students meditation and how to implement that in their lives moving forward. That's incredible. Yeah. That's going to make a huge impact. Now, yeah. let me, when you're gone, right, two years, <laughs> and you go, hopefully, knock on yeah. wood, you know, Brooklyn Borough President, do you see anyone vying for your seat? I don't know if you've supported anyone yet, or is Yeah, there... no, no one's really uh, stepped up yet or, wow. or has approached me on, on the idea of running for the seat. So my, my door's open, my ears are open. 
I know that there's one or two people that I can guess that are likely running, but for the most part, no one has really approached me in, in a very serious way and, and asked for my support yet. Okay, if you're listening, <laughs> come on out. Contact Raphael. Get him on Instagram. <laughs> I think that's important. That's how we have to continue right. to keep it going. Raphael, I know your family is very important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were born in Bed-Stuy to Dominican immigrants, the third of six children, and attended public schools in East New York. And your your parents were both union members, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What did they do? Uh, my mom was uh, a home health nurse with uh, 1199. And my dad had many different trades. When he got to this country, he was a... Uh, uh, a sewer, what a garment worker. Yeah. He was a garment worker. <laughs> tailor. <laughs> a yeah, tailor, right, right. garment worker uh, in the garment district. I remember being a kid and, and going to those factories with him. And uh, as he got older, he became an auto mechanic. He was a photographer on the weekends. So he was just someone who loved doing a lot of different things. Great. Now, was your family an inspiration for you in, in going into politics, do you think? I wouldn't say my family was because no one in my family was actually involved in politics. But I would say the people that my family put me around, uh, there are a lot of community leaders. Uh, I would say my dad often spent his time in soup kitchens. He would take me to drop food off to hungry New Yorkers. I remember that vaguely. So maybe, yeah, let's give my parents more credit. Yeah, my mom was a union member. (laughs) She took me to one or two rallies. But I guess what I want to say is that no one was really following local politics. They were just doing what they could in the community. They were just being the change. It's about being—it's community. They were part of the community. Yeah, it was never really around supporting a local council member or or getting involved in City Hall. I I think that that conversation hasn't—didn't get to our family yet, but they were more involved in helping their neighbors. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. Mm-hmm. I think my my family are, are fourth generation farmers from Ohio, and uh, one of the things as farmers is that there is always a community. You know, it right. was generally centered around the church, um, whether you had religion or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always food to be shared. My grandmother uh, passed uh, a couple years ago, and she had her 90th birthday. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, yeah, nice. and yeah, it was great. And it, so it was almost, it was like a living memorial. There's so many people there, and I heard incredible stories about her that I hadn't known. You know, I knew she mm-hmm. was a phenomenal woman, but a friend had uh, cancer, and the woman stood there and said, you know, Pat was my grandmother's name. She said she uh, she wrote letters to me every single day. I would get a letter in the post box asking me how I was, oh, wow. telling me to keep faith, to stay strong, mm-hmm. um, bringing food. Mm-hmm. There was a fire. Yeah. The house was burning down, mm-hmm. and it was so bad. And my grandmother's, my aunt was inside her, oh, I, my wow. aunt and I think my mother. And the fireman said it was too dangerous to go inside. My grandmother wow. went in and got him. Wow. Yeah. So these are things amazing. that, I, yeah, yeah, amazing, right? Mm-hmm. That are parents that, yeah. you know, it imprints. But it's community. It's community. Yeah. Okay, so when people are making great change and great impact, there's usually a why behind it. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So when you get up in the morning, you manifest a lot of things. You get a lot done. You're not just one bill that you're passing and it's like, you know, two or three bills mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, a three year thing that you're doing. You're doing this 10 bills in 10 months, right? Or less than that. So when you wake up, what is your why? Like, what would you say, you know, like when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to be the change? Is it truly for your community? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's, it's been baked in me as, as a child. Aside from what my parents used to do in the community, I was very frustrated where I grew up. You know, my parents owned the home. We were lucky. You know, they, they were union workers. But while we lived a middle-class life, we lived in a middle-class middle life in uh, one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the city. 
right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just remember walking to school, going to my neighbor's house, uh, seeing the conditions they lived in, being afraid of walking home, of not being able to, not making it home. I've had classmates that, that were killed when I was in middle school, not having any real access to extracurricular activities. We didn't have a bowling alley. We didn't have a movie theater. We didn't have anywhere to go. We spent a lot of time in our stoops. So I, I would say that just that frustration of always thinking, you know, why do we have to live under these conditions? Why when I just go over two miles into Queens or to other parts of Brooklyn, there's all these great things for people to do. And the idea of always wanting to leave the community, I guess, inspired me to think to myself, why should we leave? Why shouldn't we demand more? to get the same as everyone else. So every morning, is I think it's just what I think about. You know, what is it that we don't have that other communities have? You know, what is it that my constituents need, my students, my the children, my community need? That that drives a lot of the the social justice, economic justice kind of drive that, I, that I've had as elected official. Uh, when it comes to environmental stuff and food access, that's more of, I think, a personal passion of mine. You know, my dad was a, was a farmer, too, in the Dominican Republic. His parents are, were farmers. So it was natural for him to use our backyard as, as a garden, and he would grow fresh fruits and vegetables over the summer. So that's something that I learned and thought it was important. Uh, I started buying organic personally at my early 20s. So I was always thought to myself, why can't my constituents have the same access to this? When it comes to pollution, you know, I, I care about the planet. And I want to make sure that my constituents understand the importance of climate justice and how climate justice affects their own personal lives. That talking about climate change is not only about saving the planet. This goes back to the idea of educating folks in a way that makes sense to them. This wasn't only about protecting the planet, but it's also about dealing with the fact that your child has asthma or that the senior in our community is dealing with respiratory illnesses, dealing with the fact that uh, this is a real number in New York City, about over 1,200 people die every single year because of air quality. So it's all of those pieces mashed up into one thing, and that's what wakes me up in the morning and says I have to continue working. Amazing. Amazing. We're so lucky to have you right now. I'm and learning a lot about myself from yeah, this conversation. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know we're looking at Brooklyn Borough President, right? That's what's next for you. But you are the the change we seek, right? Like, I mean, running for mayor, presidency, I mean, governor, is any of that ever? You just don't think about it? What's um, on your compass? I mean, I, I think anyone would love to be. It's the same reason I would love to be the, the, the board president. I'd love to be the mayor of New York City, right? It's my home. It's 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 a place that's invested a lot of me, and I, I want to continue being the great place that it is. Uh, but I don't think about running for mayor. But I, I never, I would never say I would never run for mayor, right? It's, okay. It, um, I don't know. I, I think um, just anywhere I can continue making change, anywhere where I can see that needs help, and that is not, uh, you know, performing at, at the best capability. I want to be able to go and, and help wherever it is. Beautiful. So where can we find you and support you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, as you mentioned. R-L-Espinal, E-S-P-I-N-A-L. Uh, Twitter, same. Facebook, the same. And by email or, or go to my website, rafaelespinal.nyc. Okay. And, uh, and donations are being accepted yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to make a donation to my campaign, anything as small as $5 to up to $1,000, if you can, <laughs> is helpful. So, yeah, my website, rafaelespinal.nyc, we're, we're trying to raise $180,000 from 1,000 different donations by January 15th. If you can help out, 10 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever you can do is helpful. Thank you. Great. Great. Well, Rafael, thank you for all thank you Thank you, Christine. Um, Honored to have you here today. I appreciate it. And it's my, my pleasure. Friend. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. <laughs> 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.